MSW Media. So, Renato, it looks like special counsel Jack Smith has the notes from Trump's lawyers. Did his lawyer just make the case for Smith? Eh, It's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, we knew that the notes uh, from Trump's lawyer were going to make it into Jack Smith's hands, but this week we found out a lot about the contents, right? Yeah. So just, I think we need to do a quick recap that, because there's so many different cases going on. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. This is like, I mentioned last week, we need a little map where we're kind of zooming around the country and so people know where we are. This is the Mar-a-Lago case involving Trump's possession of classified documents. And gosh, time is flying. I want to say it was a couple of months ago that a judge ruled that Jack Smith could pierce the attorney-client privilege. That's a huge deal. With regard to uh, Evan Corcoran, his attorney in that, one of his attorneys in that case, who I think was dealing with the Justice Department um, in terms of certifying the compliance with the subpoena, which had been issued to Trump to return all of the classified documents that were in his possession. Um, and we did an episode on that where we discussed how extraordinary that was, just to begin with, to be able to question Corcoran, which they did in front of the grand jury. Um, on his conversations with Trump and and all of that. And so now as a part of that, Jack Smith has also been able to get the notes that Corcoran took in his discussions with Trump. Um, and those seem to be very revealing. And I just want to make a little note at the outset there was one tidbit that made me laugh, which is that Trump is really upset that you know, Corcoran took all these notes. And it's like this guy never learns. Like, lawyers take notes. Going back to Comey, right? Remember Comey wrote down everything that happened in their little secret dinners and and put it in a safe and, and it all came out. So I don't know why he thinks that his lawyers aren't taking notes. Well, one of the best bits from the Mueller report was about that, Asha. If you remember, uh, Trump was mad at that Don McGahn had taken all these notes. And he's like, Roy Cohn never took notes. And and, and, and McGahn's like, any good lawyer takes notes, right? And he, and he hates notes just generally because we know that during his presidency, he would rip up documents things that were technically presidential records um, and, you know, aides would have to tape them up when he met with Putin. And I think the translator took notes and he like ate them or something. I don't remember, but he, he was. 
to push it, push it on the toilet or something, something crazy like that. <laughs> I think so. Yes, exactly. So yeah, didn't wasn't there like a yeah, toilet? Yeah, no, that was like what? because he would like flush documents yeah, down the toilet. Crazy. Um, so this is a person who really is not excited about leaving paper trails. Um, remember in Ukraine, he put he had his aides put the transcript of the phone call on the code name server. I mean, he does not want people to find the paper trails of their of conversations clearly. And so that makes it especially a huge jackpot, I think, for Jack Smith. I agree. It reminds me in Illinois, we have like some famous politicians who put this way, uh, Mayor Daley, who my former office famously was not able to prosecute. They got all kind of up the chain, but not quite to him. Um, and uh, Michael Madigan, who was the Speaker of the House, very infamous figure just under federal indictment for corruption. They didn't want anything written down and everything had to be usually in person conversations is what they preferred. Uh, so Trump is similar. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, one thing I will say, yes, it, in fact, lawyers do take notes. And one thing I found very interesting about these, Asha, is how meticulous Corcoran was, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, from the reporting that was so interesting is he even took note on Trump's facial expressions because he was, he was documenting that he instructed Trump that he, for example, needed to return these documents to the, the United States government, who were the rightful owner of them. And he was noting how Trump reacted to that. And, you know, it's such a big thing. I think we've talked about this a little bit at one point, but one thing that's going on in any sort of legal representation, and this is the case for me in my real life practice all the time, is in addition to informing your client and making sure you're moving the ball forward for your client, there's definitely a CYA element to practicing law where you are trying to take notes to make sure that like there's no blowback later. Uh, and it's particularly the case in white collar criminal cases uh, where, you know, it's very common when you end up in jail that you blame the attorney somehow. Um, and, you know, you try to jam them up. Oh, you know, the, the attorney uh, didn't tell me this or didn't tell me that. It's all his fault. And so, of course, you take very meticulous notes. But obviously, those generally do not see the light of day unless you're, uh, former client, uh, you know, is foolish enough to try to sue you. Um, this is this very unusual situation where like the crown jewels, um, are shown. It's like your internet browser history. Like no one's supposed to see that stuff, right? It's like, uh, very revealing about what your mental processes are. I think it's going to be really important for Jack Smith. Say more about that because I feel like a constant refrain from you going back to the Mueller report when it came to obstruction is the difficulty in proving intent, right? So just to kind of give some broad contours as I understand it of what where these notes kind of fit in. Um, the Justice Department issued a subpoena to Trump telling him he must return all of the classified documents that were in his possession. And I believe like they made it very clear to him that he could not, he could not hold on to anything. Like, so there's like a whole warning piece that was given there. Right. Um, and, there was a storage room. And so Trump's valet is kind of involved in this whole thing. Um, Walt Nauta? Is that his name, Nauta? Walt Nauta, yes. Fascinating and name, yeah. It sounds like that there there was somehow 
they waited until the 11th hour, I guess, to look for these. Uh, Trump only told Evan Corcoran that, you know, or basically only showed him the storage room that had like boxes and boxes mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, Walt Nauta had access to the storage room or the keys to the storage room. And there were times when Corcoran took breaks from searching because there was so much stuff. Understandably. And he was not aware, I guess, that there were also documents, for example, in Trump's office and in other locations. But it sounds like what is being pieced together, I think, at least partially through these notes and from what they're gathering from things like surveillance footage, is that Walt Nata might have been moving stuff. Right. In and out of the storage room during the time when Corcoran was trying to go through and, you know, pull out everything that was in there. It was following this whole due diligence, quote unquote, uh, search that Trump's lawyers then gave the Justice Department, I think, 48 documents or something like that it, as, um, in you know, saying that that was what was in compliance with the subpoena. And then, of course, a few months later, the Justice Department executes a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and finds over, you know, a little over 100 more classified documents. So these notes, I think, are filling in the gaps a little bit about what was being told and what Corcoran's culpability is, maybe, and, you know, who else was facilitating or assisting Trump in in potentially an effort to intentionally conceal and withhold these documents. Uh, yeah, I think it's very important actually for Trump's liability. You know, we're, you you mentioned at the very beginning of your uh, comment, Asha, about how I am always remarking about how difficult it is to prove state of mind. And just give you and all of our listeners a sense of what you know, what you would do sometimes as a prosecutor to, to get over that hurdle. One thing that it, that I had done and not only me, but is commonly done as a, as a investigative tool is you will have agents serve your, the person you want to prosecute with like a document saying like, you are required to file currency transfer reports when you hit $10,000 or uh, currency transaction reports. Or, you know, here, you know, you, you know, you're on notice that, you know, there are, you know, the, the people who are working here are not lawfully within the United States or whatever, whatever you're trying to prove, whatever you're trying to put in the defendant's head, you, you literally will give them a sheet of paper that like puts them on notice. So you can have like an agent say, yes, I handed him this sheet of paper and he took a look at it in front of me. So like, there's no question whatsoever that they knew whatever the state of mind is that's required for the statute. And here, you know, Trump's defenses in this document thing are going to be one of two things, right? One is, I was not on top of everything. I have all the, I'm a big deal. I used to be the president. I have all these people running around doing stuff. Wasn't really focused on this. And secondly, I genuinely believed that I was possessing these things properly because I, whether I declassified them with my mind or I had a genuine belief I owned them or whatever he's going to say. And this evidence really undercuts both of those, right? Because first of all, you have Corcoran saying, I told Trump that this stuff needed to go back to the government. And he was focused on it and he 
whatever he did, whatever his facial expressions were, whatever his responses were, that evidence, and Corcoran could testify to this, and his notes would back him up. In other words, he would say, he'd take the stand. He's contemporaneous. Yeah, and the defense is going to attack him and say, you're just flipping to save your own hide. And he's like, here's my notes from the time of what happened, which are going to back him up. So I think... It's very, very strong evidence, um, and I think the the fact that it's his own attorney, I think it's it's going to be quite damning. Now, I, I would also just say too, uh, um, you know, the circumstances of all of this, you know, make it so that it's harder for you know it's harder for Trump in general because the the fact that there was a grand jury subpoena. Uh, and you know, suggested already that he was going to that the, the government. These were the government's documents; they were entitled to have them back. And so, but for obstruction in particular, proving a state of mind in this way is sort of like the icing on the cake for a prosecutor. Yeah. And what do you think is the going to be the big? Like, is there going to be a smoking gun here, or does it just get them? As close as possible. Yeah, I think it helps lock out defenses. Uh, you know, w- you may, I understand that like a lot of times our listeners are like, ah, oh, it's so obvious, but like, you know, come on is not like a, is not like we say that in our, in real life, but in, in a courtroom where evidence is being admitted and you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, that's not where you want to rely on. Like, ah, oh, come on, this is silly. This is absurd. Um, you want to kind of lock out these defenses to make it so that they're not viable from the start. And if Trump, you know, the, the fact that he got the, you know, that he, uh, you know, was under a grand jury subpoena, that's good. That's a good fact. But he's going to say, I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't focused on it. My lawyers were dealing with that. I assume they were complying with it. Does it ordinarily be, I think, very reasonable responses that lots of jurors and the whatever it is, Northern District of Florida might find very, uh, very persuasive. Uh, And so, or the Southern District of Florida, wherever this is at. And, you know, having his lawyer come in and say, well, actually, I talked to, uh, you know, Mr. Trump and he, I told him that we needed to get these documents back. He understood about this grand jury subpoena, you know, and he, you know, rolled his eyes or grimaced and, you know, whatever. And, you know, I, I got the sense he wasn't taking it seriously. And he was, you know, he lied to me about where all the documents were and things like that. I think that's going to go a long way towards uh, proving his guilt I, I, and locking out what would otherwise be, I think, a very viable defense for Trump. Yeah. And there's also evidence that they're locking out other defenses, right? I wrote, I know that there's been reporting that I think NARA had basically advised Trump on the declassification mm-hmm. procedures. Um, and I think that they're definitely kind of taking that potential defense seriously. I mean, that's another like, come on, right? But you can see that Jack Smith is, he wants to nip that defense in the bud. There was no declassification that happened um, prior to this in any in any way that would have given Trump, you know, authority to to have these documents in his possession. Um, so, yeah, that makes sense what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, that that whole, you know, we, we a lot of times make fun of the declassification via your, your mind, and it is 
silly, right? I mean, in other words, how, you know, if, if he didn't write it down anywhere, I mean, how does he know Joe Biden and just with his, the power of his mind, reclassify, uh, reclassify him, right? It, there is a kind of an element of absurdity to the whole thing. But that said, the president has the power to classify and declassify. And, you know, these formal, pro, you know, there's, there are reasonable arguments that these don't apply to presidents or he thought that or whatever. And you don't know what a jury is going to find convincing. Now, the funny thing is you may say, well, the fact that there's these procedures doesn't mean anything. They don't necessarily constrain the president. Maybe. But I think, first of all, that the, the fact of the procedures alone could appeal to some jurors. I, Definitely think it's the sort of thing that would have an appeal to a certain type of juror. And secondly, the fact that he didn't push back against the procedures or try to do anything to modify them or to proclaim that the procedures didn't apply to him or whatever until after this whole Mar-a-Lago mess, I think hurts him um, and puts him in a box. It really puts him in a spot where um, if he doesn't testify, um, it, there's going to be a lot of raise a lot of questions, and I think that's another thing you always want to do as a prosecutor is put the defense in a position where they cannot tell their story without putting the defendant on the stand because that's such a uh, a monumental decision that I think changes the complexion of an entire trial. Yeah, and then on the defense of oh, I didn't know I was just you know I was doing my own thing. Um, I feel like actually. His civil lawsuit in Florida can is not really helpful to him because, you know, if he had been if after the search had been executed, if he was like, look, I had no idea I had the stuff like I rely on my lawyers, whatever, you know, and just let the criminal process play out like he could have stuck with that. But the fact that he went to court to try to get a special master and tried to, I mean, in some of those filings, he tries to claim that those belong to him, that they're personal records. Like, in other words, to me, that gets to this was not inadvertence. Correct. And and that's an also a part where, you know, people say, I, I, I'm sure one thing that our listeners uh, drives them nuts, I know that reporters ask me about this frequently is, well, when do these statements hurt him, right? Like, okay, you know, for example, Trump makes some stupid public statement and then a bunch of commentators tweet out like, oh, this is going to be used against him or this is evidence of obstruction or this is evidence of this or evidence of that. And nothing ever happens with it. And people are like, okay, this is lame, but, you know, it got 20,000 retweets or whatever. Um, but this is the sort of example of the time where that comes into play. In other words, you know, and this is why you keep your mouth shut if you have a potential criminal case, because I think his own public statements undercut the what would have been his best defense, which is like, hey, I'm the, I was the president. I don't pay attention to this stuff. Ordinarily, like that would be a very viable defense here. It's a sort of defense that for a much lesser type of case or a much lesser charge by right, misdemeanor. Um, you would, you know, that, that Pence or, or Biden would have, right? Like, Hey, you know, whatever. I was the vice president. There's a bunch of stuff, a bunch of boxes going here and there. I don't really pay attention to what's in the boxes. If there's a few sheets of paper in one of the boxes, it wasn't with my knowledge. I, you know, that, that, and I think that's probably the truth when it comes to like Mike Pence or Joe Biden or something. And so I think, you know, all of his public statements about how he was entitled to them and how he did read them or he could have shown, could have shown in the people if he wanted to and all of this, you know, he declassified them with his mind or all that really, I think 
puts him in a tough spot because because Smith can play any of those videos at trial. And I, when a jury sees a bunch of videos and audio from a defendant, and they then they don't hear from that defendant, it really I think highlights for them that the defendant's not testifying and like why is that the case? Even though they're not supposed to think about that, they they do anyway. Yeah. And then finally, what's the, what do we think is going to happen to the valet? So the valet was giving conflicting stories to the special counsel. And it sounds like the special counsel's, you know, office was like, you better get this together because we're going to charge you with false statements because your story is not adding up. And then the lawyer pushed back and was like, screw you. Like, we're, we're not talking anymore unless you give him a deal or something. Right. Um, so <clears throat> I'm just wondering how this triangle is going to work out. Like, is Corcoran going to throw Nata under the bus? Is Nata going to then flip on Trump? Like, what do we think? How, how does this domino play out? So that's a great question. I mean, so for a guy like Nada, the, the Justice Department doesn't really care about Nada. They just want him to flip on Trump. Right. And so if you represent Nada, you know, you've got that's exactly the right approach is just be like, look, I mean, my guy is ta- is not going to say a word without immunity. Um, if you give him immunity, then we'll talk. And there's a bit of a dance there. Like you, you, it, I would be if I represented not. I'd be indignant. Like this guy's a total mope. Like he's just some random guy, you know, who's hanging around, who does different errands for Trump. Like you're seriously going to charge this guy? Um, and you know, it, it, you know, over a false statement case, like you want to have a year long criminal matter over this and like fight me a trial about whether Walt Nada is knowingly and willfully lying to you? Like, come on, and. They might do it, um, but you kind of you put them in a spot where you know it's much simpler to get to a yes. And if getting immunity for your clients, great, like that's your winner, right? If you get immunity, so I, I would, if I was representing not, I would try to be putting the DOJ in that position. I'm sure that's where his what his lawyer is trying to accomplish. And I guess my only question is who's who's paying for Nada's lawyer? Ah, I don't know. Like, are we back in this whole like crazy, you know? like there was with Cassidy Hutchinson, where right. he's not necessarily being, I mean, it sounds like what, what you're hearing from the surface is the lawyer is zealously defending his interests. But I think we've seen enough evidence where lawyers on the Trump PAC payroll are representing Trump's best interests, when, even when it comes to their client and they are not aligned. That's right. Although I think they're probably roughly aligned here because Nada doesn't want to testify against Trump either. So he's not, you know, in other words, it's fair that like, let's say I was representing Nada, I might be like, hey, just testify. Like, who cares? Like, let's just, if they give you immunity, let's testify because that's in your 100% personal best interest. But like, he may not want to testify and, you know, you could totally see a strategy where it's like, we're going to put up enough of a fight and a fuss or the DOJ is going to be like, you know, we have a great case against Trump. We're not going to waste a year of our lives going after Nada. We need to just, in, just move ahead and indict Trump. Like I could see that being a viable strategy for Nada. Um, Cause he's a Trump loyalist, right? About all accounts. Isn't he still pounding around with Trump? And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure he's like at these campaign things and everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, it is what it is. We'll see.
Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzz Kills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, uh, I guess another thing that happened this week is more hearings from the so-called Weaponization Committee. Uh, I'm sure they were a very big deal on Fox News. Um, not so much to you and I. Uh, what, what, did, what was your take on, uh, on this week's hearings? Yeah, I was mainly following the hearings on Twitter. Um, I did not sit down and, you know, turn on C-SPAN and, and watch it. Um, you know, these, this was, this is Jim Jordan's committee on the weaponization of the federal government. And he trotted out his three so-called whistleblowers from the FBI who he says were persecuted by the Bureau for their political beliefs um, and had their security clearances taken away in retaliation because they were whatever, conscientious objectors or something like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, What's really interesting is that the Justice Department um, sent a letter to the committee on the eve of the hearing laying out the reasons that these people lost their security clearances. And they're quite astonishing. I'm kind of surprised that it did not receive more coverage because they're really bad. So one of them, um, uh, this is Steve Friend, I think. This is the one who refused to, uh, he was on the SWAT team, and they were going to um, do an arrest of a January 6th, person who was associated with the three percenters, so with a militia mm-hmm. group. Um, and they were going to take the SWAT team because they had pictures of him. They knew he possessed firearms. I think there was a photo of him with mm-hmm. an AR-15, if I recall. Like, in other words, they knew that this was a person who's an anti-government, you know, with anti-government beliefs who owns, you know, Assault automatic weapons. weapons. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but he felt that that was excessive force and refused to participate. But more importantly, it turns out he at one point was caught downloading files from the FBI computer system and um, refused to undergo security training. I don't remember, but basically it was right. like pretty bad. Um, and then he quit, actually. He quit the FBI before it could go through whatever appeals process. Um, Another person, I think, was actually on the premises on January 6th, the the Capitol premises. I don't know what he was doing, but then I think he lied about it. Um, And then there was another person who was, you know, expressing sympathy for January 6th people. And then I think more troublingly, um, what was kind of spouting com- conspiracy theories that the United States government was complicit and was the one that staged it. I don't know. So like these right. are things that implicate your, you know, when you do a background check to determine whether you can hold a security clearance, there's a mnemonic that FBI agents use called Carla F. Bad, which stands for mm-hmm. characters, associates, reputation, loyalty, 
ability, finances, bias, alcohol and addictions, and drugs. And, you know, if issues on any of those fronts arise in the course of your employment, then there will, you know, you will have your security clearance at least temporarily suspended until they can fully check out, um, you know, whether, you know, whether there is an issue there. Um, So that was kind of, that was the big takeaway is that we got um, kind of more transparency on what was going on with these particular agents. Um, The other thing to tie it back into our first segment is that Dan Goldman, who I love watching in these hearings because he does such a great job of questioning, elicited that these quote-unquote whistleblowers are being paid by Cash Patel. Right. They're literally, and and not just their attorneys are being paid, but like they are subsisting on Cash Patel's largesse. Um, and I think one of them, Stephen Friend, is like employed at, you know, Cash right. Patel's think tank. I mean, it's all, it's actually astonishing because on the one hand, we have spent years hearing that, you know, this, you know, one degree removed, uh, payment of opposition research, which resulted in, um, you know, this steel dossier that was used for like one subpart of the cross-frame hurricane investigation invalidated the whole thing. Meanwhile, this is opposition research. This is, these are people are being paid by a political campaign, really, um, and they're being trotted out in a congressional committee. But I guess we're, you know, they're supposed to be taken at full face value and there's no bias or credibility issues there. So to me, the whole, you know, getting cash from cash, cash uh, money. was, um, I think, an important point to bring out. I, one thing I will just say, I, I was going to say about Dan Goldman, I think another point he made that was important was that these whistleblowers did not want to release their materials to the Democrats. And like, so the Democrats did not have the ability to review what they were saying. So if you're really a whistleblower, presumably you want the world to know whatever it is that you want to say, but they did not want to communicate with the Democrats. And Goldman's like, look, this is part of the record. The entire hearing is based upon it. As part of the house rules. We are entitled to get this. And Jordan's like, wow, you know, the, the whistleblower doesn't want that. And Dan's like, yeah, but those are the rules of the House of Representatives. Like, this is part of the record. We should get it. And I thought it was really interesting. I just thought that was such a revealing moment. It just gave, and then it was, it, it really crystallized. I thought it was important work by Dan there to, I think, crystallize that this is really a partisan hit job. It's not really people trying to get out the truth about anything. Yeah, well, if you're trying to put out selective information, I mean, the point of a whistleblower is it's based on the idea that sunlight is the best infected, right? And the idea of whistleblowing is to bring transparency to things. And so, as you just noted, if they had a hearing with the or they were in closed doors with Republicans and revealed things and they're whistleblowers, then let's see it. Let's see it. This is a transparent, I mean, quite apart from the fact that, you know, that's also part of the House rules, but it's, you know, if you're only telling selective parts of the story, then, you know, it sounds like there are things that came up that are, 
you know, documented that are going to undermine this narrative. And I think it gets to what we've talked about in many other episodes that these congressional hearings are attempts to launder narratives, right? That is information laundering. It's a way of trying to legitimize certain types of conspiracy theories and narratives because, um, you know, and, and letting by sele- by letting selective things uh, come out and hiding others. And the irony is, in addition, what they'll do is they'll attack the media for not like having you know backed up you know wall to wall coverage of these supposed revelations. And the reason why the media is not doing that is because they, I mean, they can see the same things you're seeing, and they see it's not credible, and they don't want to you know, devote attention to something that's not credible. Um, but yet that'll be used, I think, by the right as a way of attacking the, you know, quote, you know, you know, traditional media or, or, uh, you know, establishment media or whatever they're going to call it. Yeah. The last thing, and I'll just, I'm not going to go too deeply into it because I'm writing a just security piece on it is that we discussed the Durham report last week that got woven into the whole FBI, you know, testimony, um, you know, and, and the whole idea is to just to create this idea that the FBI is a bastion of woke progressiveness, I guess. It's all, you know, in the bag for the Democrats. I find that hilarious, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I, I mean, I find it hilarious if it wasn't so sad and so damaging to our institutions. But um, one of the things that has come up is th- that because of all of this, um, and including the Durham report and you know stuff about the Steele dossier and Carter Page FISA, the same uh, mantras that you know the reauthorization of Section Seven Hundred Two, which is a pro- programmatic surveillance under FISA, you know that they're just going to have to really think about reauthorizing that, and it's just so dumb because that literally has nothing like. Even if you were to take everything that Jim Jordan is saying at face value, it has nothing to do with Section 702. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think that this is just a way of providing some meat in the bones. You know, one critique that you, I, and others have had about the Republican Party nowadays is that there's no policy, right? There's no actual policy. But I think that they have there, it's just all, you know, sound bites and um, grievance and so forth. And so I think they add stuff like that or, whatever, you know, they care about suddenly they care about women's athletics or whatever the thing is of the moment to try to add some sort of meat on the bones or some reason why Congress is concerned about this. Because otherwise, like, what is, why is this even something that Congress, why yeah, is why this, is this a, thing? a thing? Why are yeah. why are elected representatives when we're about to default on our money spending time, you know, creating clips for Fox News or Newsmax or whatever the, the their preferred network of the moment is? Yeah. Well, the big takeaway is, in my opinion, and I, I realize that the Fox News world will have a different view, um, is that this was another Jim Jordan fail. Yeah, I think that's failure is Jim Jordan's middle name. Okay, so Renato... Before we go, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, some some new information that you've uncovered and uh, linking it to this 
um, the new Guardians of the Galaxy that's come out, which uh, you know, the Marvel series kind of has done a really great job of um, making it the gift that keeps on giving because they'll just pick characters and then they'll do a deep dive into that origin story. And I think the new Guardian of the Galaxy is about what I, I can't keep track of all the characters. I do watch them, but like. Rocket Raccoon. Oh my God. Ah, Rocket Raccoon, whatever. Okay. So, you know, we, uh, I, I guess that's um, the big backstory there. And we were talking about how you have a backstory in this podcast uh, that you wanted to tell everyone about. Okay, I thought it was so interesting because so this weekend was the gala, yearly gala for the rescue where we got Henry. So we went to the gala and we met uh, the people who uh, own the rescue in Puerto Rico who traveled up from Puerto Rico to join us at the gala. They have a relationship with our local rescue. And they were telling us about Henry and showing us various videos and photos and so forth. So my wife invited them over, we picked them up, and, and we spent an entire evening with them. And it was amazing um, because they actually got us on the phone and they had a translator there with the different people who kind of the whole, every step of Henry's life. So like Henry was purchased um, by a, a woman who, there's a woman who lived in Puerto Rico who was a partner to it with a woman who had moved there. And they purchased Henry for $750 from somebody on the street who was selling dogs. And he was, he was portrayed to be a golden retriever, which he's not. Um, and the people from the rescue are convinced he's like a street dog. Uh, you know, there's, they call them satos. Uh, there's like all these stray dogs in Puerto Rico that are on the street. Mm-hmm. And, and there's actually a whole. I lived in Puerto Rico. Yes, oh, you are. know? Oh, well, okay. So I, I didn't know any of this. So there's a whole beach where they just, there's tons and tons of, of dogs who just are hanging out. So anyway, so they bought Henry for $750. He's a little puppy. And um, one of the, uh, the, the woman who was actually um, from Puerto Rico um, she, she died within a few days. She choked on food oh, no. in front of Henry actually and her partner had just decided to leave uh, the country. It was like very traumatic. Wait, I'm sorry. She choked on food. Yes, and died. <gasps> and so, in front, we have a photo. We should. There's a photo of Henry with the original owner. So she gave up the the um, uh, the uh, Henry to a local uh, whose name was Dakota at the time. So a local shelter, fam- uh, like a, a a family that takes care of fosters in that area. And also, um, and we talked to that woman who, um, you know, and we saw these videos and photos of Henry out, like outside. He had never really lived. He was living out kind of outdoors. I don't think he ever really lived in a home until he was in our home. Mm. Uh, he was always outdoors. Um, and he ended up going to this rescue and then they, they paid to fly him to America. Um, within like four, four or six weeks. So he ended up living, he went from living, I guess on the streets to being sold to somebody living in that house for a few days, live with a foster. Then he lived in a, a Puerto Rican rescue. Then he came to a U.S. foster family and the U.S. rescue, the U.S. foster family, and then to us all within the span of like less than one year of his life. Poor thing. Isn't that amazing? That's really, that's really yeah, it's amazing. And it's also like really stressful. 
Yeah. So and now he's like the die. happiest like, dog. I'm still stuck on that. Like that's traumatic. Yes. And he is, I mean, Henry is the happiest dog I've ever encountered. Um, he is so grateful and so happy and, you know, so he's just got an awesome disposition. In fact, the woman who owned him for just a few days said the same thing. She's like, he had such a, she's like, I felt like the money was well spent because I, he had such a great personality and he's just, he's a great dog. And Aww. so he he made his way from, you know, uh, kind of a crazy situation to living in a, a beautiful home with a family that really loves him. So I love that. And to bring it back to Gardens of Galaxy, you said that that movie has themes um, against animal cruelty. So it kind of is. Yes. Some of the scenes can be hard if you care a lot about animals. So I'll give that warning without giving any spoilers, but it's very much, there's very, uh, the kind of anti-cruelty themes uh, in the movie, which is great if you're somebody who loves animals as I do. Um, but yeah, it definitely made me think because of the origin story made me think a little bit when we, uh, just days after I saw it, uh, we, we learned all the stuff about Henry. That's great. M-S-W-Media.